Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello listeners of Becoming Educated. Firstly, thanks so much for your patience while I took a little break from recording episodes. But I'm back and I'm back with a bang. This week I am joined for the second time by Kate Jones. Kate is currently the Head of History at the British School Al-Kabira in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. But if you haven't heard the news, she will soon be returning to UK shores to take up a post at Inner Drive as teaching and learning lead. Bradley and Edward of Inner Drive are friends of the podcast and you can listen to our episode in the back catalogue as we discuss 99 studies every teacher should know. But on to today's episode. Kate and I explore her latest book, William and Leahy's Five Formative Assessment Strategies in Action, as part of the In Action series from John Cat, edited by Tom Sherrington. And in the podcast, I begin by asking Kate about a recent article she published with Professors Robert Bjork and Dylan William. Doesn't she um, associate herself with the absolute giants of education? Then we go on to discuss each of the five formative assessment strategies in turn, which are learning intentions and success criteria, engineering effective classroom discussions, providing feedback that moves learning forward, activating students as learning resources for one another, and activating students as owners of their own learning. But before we dive into the podcast, if you would like to support the ongoing work in creating Becoming Educated, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash DN Leslie. The link will also be available in the show notes. Now to the main event. Let's dive into my discussion with Kate Jones. Kate, welcome back to the Becoming Educated podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me again, because, you know, I'm a big fan of this podcast. No, absolutely. It's just in time because your book just popped to the post today. Just picked up on the way home. Um, But thank you so much for giving me the the privilege of of reading it uh, beforehand. Um, So we're going to discuss five formative assessment strategies in action in a little bit. But before we do that, can you share with listeners what you've been up to since we last spoke, which was quite a while ago? Yeah, I was trying to figure out when this was. So we were chatting about retrieval practice two. And then I published retrieval practice three, essentially, the resource guide. And then I wrote this in action book. And I'm also I'm in Abu Dhabi. But since we last spoke, I made a decision to return back to the UK. And that, that was a really difficult decision to make, influenced by COVID and the fact I haven't been back to the UK in about two years so, yeah, a lot of change since we last spoke. And a lot of change for you. Congratulations on your engagement. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, for get, thanks for getting that in on the, on the first podcast. Yes, yes. Thankfully, the good lady said yes. So really oh. excited for, for the future. Yeah. And of course, um, friends of the podcast, Edward and Bradley, in our drive, they released some news on Twitter that you are joining them. Can you share with listeners what you'll be doing with in our drive? Oh, I am so excited. So Inner Drive, they're amazing, as you know, their book, The Science of Learning, their online academy. I'm just a massive fan. I've been a fan of them before they knew who, who I was or any of my books. And we were just in touch a lot and collaborating a lot. And we delivered some webinars together. And this just sort of come about with our collaborations about me joining them as teaching and learning lead so I think we can just really sort of complement each other um, in terms of 
because their knowledge about the research is incredible. And I've got lots of things that I want to share with teachers, um, which I'll, I'll talk about with you today, the things in the book and other things moving forward. So, yeah, I'm joining the Inner Drive team from January. I'll be moving to London and I I will be in a drive as well. <laughs> definitely, definitely exciting. We'll, we can't wait to have you back uh, on the UK shore. And I'm sure the work that you'll do with, with Inner Drive will be incredibly valuable. And I'd like to signpost Inner Drive as well. Their website and their resources is fantastic. Okay. And of course, you'll add a hell of a lot to them. So before we, we talk into formative assessment in action, I'd like to ask you about a recent article that you published with the absolute giant of Professors Robert Bjork and Dylan William. Can yeah. you tell us what that experience was like and the contents of the article, why testing shouldn't be the first response to last year's learning gaps? Well, I think this is a professional dream come true to be a co-author with Dylan William and Robert Bjork. Um, so we'll talk about Dylan William today because he edited this book. So... I've obviously worked closely with him over the last few months. Um, Retrieval Practice 2 was dedicated to the Bjorks. So I've been in touch with them. I had a connection uh, with Robert Bjork and Dylan William and Robert Bjork have, have met and are very fond of one another. So this is a really important message in the article. And it was Dylan's idea and he approached Robert Bjork, and when they were having a conversation, they also mentioned about getting me involved as I'm in the classroom as well. And obviously, the day I got that email, I was like, yes, <laughs> count me in. And um, it was something I'd heard Dylan talk about before, and I'd seen why it was a problem in my classroom. So even though I'm a huge advocate for retrieval practice, recalling information from long-term memory uh, regularly to improve um, long-term memory, then it can be problematic when you ask students to recall information after a really long period of time where they haven't done that. And I had a student, um, a sixth form student that I currently teach now, actually, and I told him that he was actually my inspiration for the bits that I wrote. And I remember him saying to me, Miss, I tried to do one of those brain dumps that you tell us about where you write down everything you know about a topic. And I couldn't do it. I just really, really struggled. And then when I was chatting to him, it's because he was trying to recall information from months and months ago. And I said, well, actually, because so much time has passed, it's not that it's not there. You just need a bit of a refresher and a review. And Dylan William has written about this, about after the summer holidays, when we come back, don't jump into retrieval practice. And all of this is connected to Robert Bjork's work with the new theory of disuse, which basically has a measurement of memory with storage and retrieval strength. And for a few months now, um, I've been talking and working with teachers saying, actually, we really need to know this because just because a student can't recall information at that point in a retrieval task, doesn't mean it's not there in their long-term memory. The retrieval strength is low. So what we need to do is have that, that boost, that refresher to increase the retrieval strength. So about hundred years ago, 1914, there was a law of disuse by Edward Thorndike, basically along the lines of, he didn't say this, but if you don't use it, you lose it. And this law of disuse advocated that if you don't use facts and knowledge, then you will forget them, memories will decay, and they are lost. Now, the Bjorks, hence the name The New Theory of Disuse in 1992, found that that isn't quite the case, actually. It's not lost. It's just inaccessible at that time. So what we need to try and do is make it more accessible and more retrievable, hence to this new theory of disuse, so that the storage strength is, you know, information is really well embedded, secure, has these connections. Um, storage strength won't decrease unless in, in, in very extreme, unlikely circumstances, such as damage to the brain. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about a learning environment in school. We're talking about physical damage to the brain. Otherwise, we can assume that storage strength hasn't decreased. 
The reason that students can't recall it is because the retrieval strength has decreased. So what we said was we're going back to school after a pandemic, after the holidays. If you'd have probably asked me this a while ago when I written my first retrieval practice book, I'd have said, yes, do a retrieval quiz. Now we're saying, no, just wait, do a review, do a refresher, and then do the retrieval tasks. And also the impact this will have on student confidence, like that student of mine, bless him, when he said, I can't remember anything. And he's such a great student. And it really knocked his confidence and was demoralizing. And we don't want that for students, even more so after what they've been through with the pandemic and online learning. So not only is it boosting in terms of the retrieval strength, it will boost their confidence as well. Now I'm taking this a step further. So I've been back in touch with Robert Bjork and Dylan William asking for advice because I think knowing this, we need to apply that to curriculum design. So looking at the academic year, when we return after holidays and breaks and when did we last revisit content? I think this is, this is something that really, really excites me. Um, so I'm looking forward to, I've written about it, but I'm looking forward to writing even more about it. <laughs> Sorry, long answer. <laughs> well, it's really interesting what you mentioned there about, about curriculum design and syndrome. Because yeah. if I think back to my own experience, I quite often had tests straight after a holiday. Yeah. So if we came back and there was a little bit more, more period of instruction, checking for understanding, and then the retrieval and then the test, then we'd have much more success. And as you say, much more confidence and motivation and tie into the to the work that some people have done around motivation and if you have that success you're more likely to to want to learn more so that's wonderful and thank you for that thorough thorough explanation it was interesting and just to kind of break it down a little bit further it's almost like when you attend a pub quiz and you know something's in there it's just not in there but then when your partner tells you if it's like a, an actor in a movie and they say remember that movie when they did that and you're like oh yeah just because you've yeah. had that little recap yeah, there's so many misunderstandings about my, I used to say that about you either use it and, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. Because I'm trying to learn Welsh. So I know actually I can speak Welsh, but I haven't spoken Welsh for five years, pretty much. And that's, that's exactly the wrong way. I shouldn't have said I'm trying to learn Welsh. I'm trying, I need to refresh because it's there. It is there. I don't need to learn it from scratch. I'm not a complete beginner. But my retrieval strength with the language is very low. So I'll need to refresh it and then it will come back to me and it will be easier, far easier than if I was learning it from scratch. Mm -hmm. And what you said about testing after the holidays, some students could do well if they have revised and prepared over that holiday, then their retrieval strength will be high. But we're not there. They may not have done that. So, yeah, lots of sort of implications for that. But it, learning isn't lost. It's there. We've just, it's about how accessible it is. That's the key. Certainly. And if we design our curriculum correctly, we can help the children yes. back into that, to their long-term memory and, and bring that to the front and increase the, is it the retrieval strength? Increase the retrieval strength. Yes. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, such wise words and, and I highly recommend the article to people listening. So now we're going to talk about your latest book. Um, I think it'll be your fourth book, am I right? Fifth. Sorry, Darren. <laughs> oh, I forgot about Love to Teach. Yes. Yeah. How could I? Sorry. It's Sorry. Okay. So your fifth book. And this time it's part of the In Action series um, from John Cat Education. And it's uh, William and Leahy's Five Formative Assessment Strategies in Action. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to unpick each of the five strategies. Um, and we're going to begin with uh, clarifying, sharing and understanding learning intentions and success criteria. So how important a role do learning intentions and success criteria play in the planning and learning process for both teachers and students? Yeah, really important this chapter. I felt it was important because you can call learning intentions, they have different names, lesson objectives, learning aims, you know, it's the same so it's the same principle of saying what we will be learning and with this more so than any of the other strategies i felt it being misunderstood and mutated and revisiting the work of Dylan William and Siobhan Leahy and they didn't write about copy it out and glue it into your book and all this sort of stuff and about it you know being you know copied and pasted from an exam board that sort of thing 
So I thought I'm really going to try and put the record straight here and try and convince people who perhaps are sceptical about sharing learning intentions with students. Um, but Dylan and John Hattie wrote the foreword and Tom Sherrington, everyone involved, we all agree, this is so important. It doesn't necessarily have to be at the start of a lesson, um, which is not always the, the most appropriate time to do that. So you might have your students come in, a do now, a retrieval task. Uh, you may have work or a topic that you're carrying on, because that was another problem um, that I had early in my career was there had to be. And actually, you need to get Bruce Robertson on this show because I read Teacher Delusion 3 and I found it really interesting what he wrote about this. I'd quite like to talk to him because he does say about lesson. He likes to have a what we do in this, like what we're learning this lesson. And he's absolutely, that's fine. He's absolutely right to promote that. However, what we do know, um, and I'm sure Bruce would agree with me, we're completely on the same page, is that learning... Um, or the content can span more than one lesson so it that was a problem I faced early in my career that I felt I couldn't have the same objective or outcome for the same lesson so I was reinventing it and trying to come up with stuff and it's quite difficult to write a learning intention mm -hmm. Sam Strickland someone else who you've had as, as a guest um, he in his school advocates a big question which is a learning intention and that big question might be the lesson. It might span over a few lessons. But for me, the absolute game changer, and I'm coming back to Robert Bjork. Oh, my goodness. Everything comes back to the Bjorks. Um, but the Bjorks made the distinction with learning versus performance. So when we have a learning intention, and first of all, it should be about the content we're learning, not what we're doing today. That's task. That's not the learning. Um, when we have a learning intention, we can check for understanding throughout that lesson, which, of course, teachers always do that. But that is more of an indication of performance. We must revisit the learning intention at a later date to see if it has been learned. And actually, I was writing two books at the same time. <laughs> I was writing my resource guide uh, with retrieval practice activities, and I was writing this chapter. And that's why I just came up with the, a, a retrieval grid of big questions. So whatever your big question or your learning intention was, ask that big question two weeks later or three weeks later, depending on how many lessons, how often you see your students. Because then you're making it a retrieval task to check if the learning intention, if, if, if students can recall that. And that's really good for the students to know why you're doing that and why you're revisiting it. I think students really need to know the difference between learning and performance, because um, if they, you know, were to complete an exit ticket in a lesson, you think, oh, yeah, you know, I've really understood that. And then they think I don't need to revisit it. Tick, that is done. That's not a true reflection of their learning. So the learning intentions for me, really, really important, important to get it right. And I feel sorry for teachers who are, not me in my school, because my school's brilliant, but I'm <laughs> not just saying that, but who are shackled to a policy that says you must write it out. It must be in your books. It must be evident because that's not always the best way. Um, I do think the best way is to verbally explain it as well, just and have a conversation about it. By all means, have it on your PowerPoint, have it written on the board. But when we stick it on the board and say, copy it down, do the students actually understand it? Do they know what they're, they're learning? Um, is there vocabulary that in that learning intention that you need to revisit and check and maybe use a retrieval task for the vocabulary in that? And then the success criteria is, is different. So we don't differentiate learning intentions. Everyone will have the same learning intention, but the success criteria helping us how to get to where we need to get to, we can differentiate that. That's about providing support and challenge for all so I've at first I was like oh my goodness how am I going to write a chapter on learning intentions <laughs> like I, I I don't think I could do this and then the more I got reading the more I got reflecting um talking to teachers I was like it's really important and Dylan William and I both agree it's the hardest strategy mm -hmm. um, and we don't talk to each other enough about learning intentions and reflect on them and 
Um, I, I, so I, I really hope middle and senior leaders read this book as well so that they can help the classroom teachers in their school have this conversation like that we're having about learning intentions and success criteria. Certainly. So what advice can you give to help teachers then design effective learning intentions and success criteria? Yeah, so I think what we have to realise with learning intention is we won't be able to include everything in that. You know, the idea is that they are quite clear and concise, but what we can't include, we've got the success criteria that students can refer to. And the same way with success criteria, I can never say success criteria, <laughs> it's such a mouthful, but the same way less than objective learning intention shouldn't be copied down. Sometimes success criteria can be um, a checklist, tick box, glued in the book, but they really need to be things that, that students refer to and, and that genuinely does help them. And there can be times where that success criteria can be generic. Mm-hmm. I mainly think of literacy, that like you need to write in paragraphs, you need to do this, you need to use perhaps these adjectives and that's absolutely fine. Um, and then there will be times where obviously it's more specific to the content and the knowledge um, it's I think it's again worth looking at other teachers other examples out there I went on the TES as part of my research and downloaded free schemes of work from all sorts of subjects I mean this is because I was writing a book I wouldn't say other people have to do this but I was looking at learning intentions um, and, and I was looking at how carefully crafted and designed they were but however that was taken out of context because I saw a year four learning intention about Judaism which I thought oh that's quite a complex uh, learning intention but it depends on their prior knowledge it depends on how the teacher explained it it depends if you know the teacher referred to um, what an artifact was so whilst that looked really challenging and complex the delivery in the lesson is key. Certainly is. It helps shape, like you have your learners, this is what the children are going to learn. This is the success to how they're going to learn it. But ultimately the task that you set set and plan for needs to really help them think about that learning. And Srobko says, learning happens when we think hard. And if we're thinking hard, then it's going to help us a little bit. Thanks so much for that. And that brings us smoothly on to the second um, formative assessment strategy. So, okay, how do teachers engineer effective classroom discussions? Okay, so this is all about getting the evidence of the learning. So once we've explained what the learning intentions are and we are delivering that content through explanation and tasks, we need to see, again, what's being understood, the performance and the learning. There's so many different ways. I loved writing this chapter because it's just all the teaching and learning stuff. It's everything that we do in the classroom that is is formative, not summative. So summative is the end product where we get the grades and we don't really perhaps build on that. But the formative is happening in the lesson. This is the very responsive element of formative assessment. Um, A massive part of this is questioning. Uh, questioning techniques and today it was really interesting in the lesson that I I realized and I keep talking about this because I keep going back to hands-up approaches (laughs) without I I dip into that sometimes I forget so I'm very aware of cold calling and I think that's fantastic as a technique but there's a context to how you do that you have to have a relationship with the class you know it's not about putting them on the spot and so on but it's very easy for a teacher to ask a question and two or three hands up and you pick that student because you think, well, they're volunteering, they want to answer. So it's totally understandable why we have hands up. And there are times where I do think a hands up approach is the best approach. But in terms of questioning and eliciting evidence of learning, it's, it's not effective. And Dylan Williams, Siobhan Leahy write, no hands up except to ask a question. And this isn't easy to do. You know, we have to think carefully about our questions. We have to ask. We have to have the wait time, um, all sorts of things. Um, the think, pair, share element is really good as well. But, and this is something I've been talking about lately, that Dylan just, Dylan is brilliant. Well, he's just brilliant. But he's brilliant at taking things that I do in the classroom that are very simple, that lots of teachers do, 
and just giving this advice, you think, yeah, you're right. And the advice that he says is that teachers skimp on the think. And that is so true. So it is said, if we give time to think, not allowed to talk to somebody, maybe write down your thoughts, then share the pink and the, the share with the, the, the pink, no, the think. <laughs> Oh my goodness, the think, and then you pair, talk about it with your partner. Um, and then students should be in a confident position that you can cold call them, that you can ask them these questions. Um, and retrieval practice is a massive factor in eliciting evidence of learning as well. But it has to involve everyone in the class. And I've been saying this throughout all my books. Um, and this is something that, that Tom Shenton is a really big advocate for. And that's the problem with hands up because you know, Darren, you might answer it, but it doesn't mean everyone else. I've got evidence that you have understood or you have recalled it. I haven't got evidence for the rest of the class. So that's where we can use the mini whiteboards, the retrieval quiz. Um, it, it's harder to do things like have conversations one-on-one. It would be great, wouldn't it, if we could have a chat with each student one-on-one and find out from them. And, and we do have conversations in the class but we, we simply can't do that all the time. It's just not possible. So then that's why we have to have these whole class activities. And what I really like to do in a retrieval task or, or questioning task where they're writing is walk around the class and sort of skim and scan answers and then tell a student, oh, you know, that's, that's a great response. That's really, really good. And then that when I call, call them, that they already know that I've told them it's correct. So that, that confidence, they're not on the spot. Oh, well, Miss said it was brilliant. She wants me to now share it with everyone else, so I will. So if you do have reluctant um, people in your class to get involved in class discussions, there are those things. Get them to talk to a partner, get them to write it down, give them some praise in advance. There are lots of things that we can do to build up the confidence to create this this culture in the classroom. Um, So, yeah, there's, there's just so, so many things that we could do to elicit. And that evidence of learning is what will perhaps change the direction of your lesson. It may make you think, oh, I'm going to have to go over this either now or I'm going to revisit this later or we can move on. So it's very, very insightful and informative for the teacher. Definitely. I love that idea of not skimping on the think because it's almost similar to to wait time. Teachers notoriously don't give enough wait time. So the children aren't, the students aren't having enough time to, to think. And I love that idea of, giving them time to think and then turn and talk with their partner and then they've got the confidence and what you mentioned there about if you're calling on students that check 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 for students what are they actually learning and making that visible I love how you mentioned you mentioned mini whiteboards I love using mini whiteboards and yeah. having so much students respond to you in one time and you get that glance and then you can probe and, and go further one strategy in there that um you mentioned most of the things that i kind of ticked off that in, in that thing so that was brilliant but one thing about students responses i'm really interested in how students respond and you mentioned um shape, now, yeah. shape your answers. can you speak briefly to that idea please yeah so i can't take credit for this because this is barry smith has he been a guest on your show he has yes yeah i thought he has so now shape is something that um i think needs to be very much in the sort of the context of a classroom because this is all about providing answers where where students shape their verbal answers so that you know they answer in sentences you know they extend so it's not a it's not a one word answer it is a full sentence it is explained they articulate it very well there is about um a, a, the E in shape is the eye contact. And that's the bit I just sort of wanted to flag. But Barry is very aware of this. I've had lots of con- conversations with him about shape um, and about shaping a verbal answer to, to just make it as clear and concise and as confident as possible, not a, a grunt, I don't know, one word answer. And some students, they can really struggle with the eye contact element. But again, this is where you have to bring in your knowledge of the students, but that is important. We do, this is about actually, this is more than just the eliciting evidence of learning. This is for students to become 
confident and articulate people you know think about when they're older or even you know they might have an interview for university uh, to get a place into university and they wouldn't you know want to hear a one word basic answer they'd want a sophisticated clearly explained answer delivered confidently and you know no hands um, in front of the mouth and not mumbling these are all the things that make up shape um and and that is what we want it's comes naturally to some students and more work for other students but we model it we talk about it um and again you put it into the context of your classroom and your students uh where, and if it's if it is a struggle for some you know we're aware of that and I think that is the problem sometimes where and I try to address this in the book with lethal mutations and misunderstanding Cold calling doesn't have a great name in the UK because you think of, I don't know, people knocking on your door trying to sell stuff or ringing you up, you know, uh, flogging something, you know. <laughs> and actually, it's an American thing because obviously Doug Lamov is, is American. And when I wrote about cold calling, I sent it to Doug to ask for his sort of approval and feedback. And he really liked the warmth element of it, the tips that I gave about using a student's name, praise, you know, all these things that it's not cold at all. It, the idea is the accountability and everyone is involved. It's very inclusive. And, and Doug Lamov is just, he's so, he's actually really sweet when he talks about this. He says that it's not a loving thing to do to just to not give somebody opportunity to speak. So there are people who are opposed to shape and cold calling, but I think taking out of the context of the classroom uh, of your class taken out of context they can be misunderstood mm-hmm. I think so how we apply it and reading about them carefully are really important definitely I like what you said about the context of the cl- classroom because when Doug Lamov talks about it I listened to him recently he talks about voice equity I'm calling upon you because I really value what you have to yeah. say asking them to articulate that clearly and shape their answer kind of goes that further but it goes back to what you said a little bit earlier on about giving the students confidence you know by asking them a question giving them time to think talk to their partner maybe even write it down on a whiteboard or on a bit of paper then call on them then they're going to have that much more confidence and you're going to have a really safe caring um loving classroom like you mentioned there where you want you value everyone's um contribution and you want everyone to contribute so you can really check Oh, sorry. Yeah, check for understanding and elicit evidence of learning. So thank you very much for mentioning that. And sorry, just to add to that point is if you've got students who are, again, very reluctant, the cold calling doesn't have to be a question. So you could say, Darren, what do you think about this? And ask for their opinion rather than like a factual recall. Or, or Darren, did you want to add anything else? You know, or Darren, I'm really interested in your thoughts on this and your response and your reaction. And these are the things that we can do to just get students used to speaking in front of their peers. I really like that, that, that turn on our, on our cold call. Thanks so much for that. So we're now going on to um, the last couple of strategies. And, and the third strategy focuses on providing feedback that moves learning forward. Now, we know the research behind feedback is complex, but mm-hmm. how important is it that feedback improves the student and not just the work? This was such an intimidating chapter because, I mean, Michael Charles wrote a whole book on feedback, as have many others like Hattie. So I was like, oh, my goodness, I really got to focus on the main sort of points with feedback and like you said there is a difference between improving the work and the learner and that is really important and there are times where we do want to improve a specific piece of work but we also hope that that will improve the learner as well so um uh, and this is an issue with being online with spell checkers that they will improve or grammarly or whatever you know and i i, I do use these as well but they will improve that piece of work, but they you know, haven't improved the literacy skills of the learner. So that's that's really important that we're not when we're given feedback that it's not just about how they can make that one piece of work better, but moving forwards 
Um, and that's the key thing with the feedback. And I came up with sort of three rules or pieces of advice. I do this a lot throughout the chapter. I just like, I don't know, they're very loose rules or I don't know. <laughs> rules is probably not the right word, principles. Um, but first one, feedback should be understandable. And I say that because I've tried to give feedback that is more effective than, oh, well done, very good, which I did that in a lot of that in the start of my career. Um, and I'm not, not blaming the school I worked at because it was just something teachers did. We would tick it and put, well done. But what that's not really, I mean, that does, you know, that is nice for the student to see, you know, and yeah. it might show that the teachers have looked at it, although have they really, you know, I, I'm sure they have, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. So yeah, then I tried to make my feedback more effective, but then I realized it probably wasn't always that easy for students to understand. I think with older students, um, my deputy head teacher, uh, we were chatting today about feedback because he, you know, feels like we've, we're doing really well, but we got further to go we were talking about exam classes and how we might use the mark schemes for you know students do an exam question and we might think well that's a level five answer in my subject so I'm going to take comments on that mark scheme and write it for the students and and then do they actually understand that though I mean that again is for the teacher so actually it's my job to be that translator and make sure they understand it or if I was to say something in terms of literacy if I said homophones, you know, like, oh, what is that? You know, I need to be more clear about there, there, there. Um, so the first point is, first of all, do they understand what the feedback is actually saying to them? And then if they understand it, we hope it's helpful. But in order to see that it's helpful, it has to be actionable. And this isn't about write it out again. Sometimes you can write it out again and improve it, but it is about moving forward with taking that feedback and I had a lot of feedback in this book from Dylan William and it opened my eyes to to getting feedback again because I haven't really had feedback for years if I'm honest I get feedback after my books are published on reviews but I couldn't I can't do anything about it then the book's published so that's like summative in a sense whereas Dylan's feedback was formative because I was still writing the book and it, it can be very personal and emotive and just say, oh, no, I haven't got this right. But, you know, I, I, I did have the attitude, this is brilliant. This is I'm going to just absorb this feedback. I'm going to listen to it. You know, I could have ignored his feedback. I mean, I would never do that, but I could have. You know, I could have ignored the feedback, thought, well, I know best. And I don't. But I could have had that attitude, which some students can have. But I embraced it. I welcomed it. And the book was so much better for it. So students have to have that, have to have that attitude as well. Um, and it's quite good, I think, for us as teachers to share when we've had feedback, how we've responded to it and how it's helped us for them to, to really value the role and importance of feedback and that we're not doing it because it's our job and we have to in a book scrutiny. We're doing it to genuinely help the students progress. I like that idea of, of we'll have to show, so it goes back to what you said about modelling, modelling how we talk to one another, modelling how we, re, we answer questions and modelling the students. We, we receive feedback as well. When I receive feedback, this is this is what I do. I love what you mentioned there about understandable, helpful and actual. Because I, as you know, I teach physical education and we're renowned for walking past a student and just saying, that was brilliant, well done. <laughs> but what was good <laughs> you know what are, are we being specific about what was good did they understand what was good or did they just hear a noise of the teacher saying well done and then of course i like that was it understandable is it helpful and is it actionable dylan williams says says a lot that i can't remember what he talks about is it um is it feedback that should be more work for the student than the teacher? Yeah, the recipient and the donor. Yeah, there's been a, it's always been more work for the teacher than the student. We need to really flip that on its head. I'll tell you what, I've got a very quick story that I think you might like. Colin Montgomery, you know who he is, the, the golfer. Yeah. yeah, well, I got in touch with him to, and he sent a video message to my dad. Well, I said, he's not a friend of mine. I had to pay him for this. <laughs> but it was a video message to my dad with golf tips. And I had no idea what he was on about, right? I literally, it was just like, what? But my dad understood it. Mm -hmm. And that just made me realize as well about the importance of understanding it and the curse of knowledge mm -hmm. and how I could sort of see 
in a in a subject like PE where you might have some students who are sort of base sporting do it outside of school and there could be I can't even think of terms sorry because I'm not sporty but they like Colin Montgomery using these ter- these terms that my dad knew so he could understand it and access it but that if I wanted to prove my golf well I don't even know what Colin Montgomery's saying <laughs> so I can't act on that you know so the understand element um you know we all have subject specific terminology and phrases and it, if I was to say something like, oh, well, next time writing chronological order, okay. well, do they actually understand what I mean by chronology and chronological order? I'm sure they do, but actually do they? So all these sorts of things, the understanding is really, really key. I just thought I'd get that in there, but that's <laughs> I love that. Colin Montgomery <laughs> is a Scottish icon. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely love that. But if you want to ever be totally bamboozled, spend, uh, spend an hour listening to the cricket commentary. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, Good what, what on earth are they talking about? But I love yeah. that love that analogy about making it specific. And also the mention of your own subject in the, in the chronology. And mm. you'll have taught them the, what chronology, chrono, chrono, I can't even say it, chronology means <laughs> chronological order is. So when you're asking yeah. them to improve that, they yeah. already know, they understand. So then it's easily actionable for them. So that was a, that was a great analogy. Thank you so much. Now on to the fourth uh, form of assessment strategy, and we're, and we're getting into the, the holy grails of, of education here. Um, how do we activate students as learning resources for one another? Yeah, so again, another one that's got potential to be misunderstood when we think of group work and some students taking some time off and then one student doing all the work. That's where we have to have group goals and individual accountability, and that's from Dylan and Siobhan Um, and this is really important and for me this has just the whole online learning pandemic has really opened my eyes to how important this strategy is because we were on zoom and there was there was breakout rooms and stuff but it wasn't the same Um, even actually the think pair share come into this category as well this this strategy um, about students talking to each other learning from one another supporting each other the focus has to be obviously collaboration not competition Um, and I'm I'm not a massive fan of competition in the classroom obviously it's different for you your PE so like that's a football match like okay it's massive in your subject but um but generally like a retrieval task for example uh retrieval should not be um done in pairs retrieval has to be individual to see what that individual can recall like you said about in a pub quiz and you can't remember it but someone else on your team might remember it but then you get the point even though you didn't know (laughs) but someone on your team did so that's that's it, that's why it's important that we sort of have the distinction of when and where it isn't appropriate. And I massively drew on the work of Ron Berger for this. Oh, I love Ron Berger and his book, Ethic of Excellence and Austin's Butterfly and Kind, Specific and Helpful. That's just a great mantra for peer critique and feedback. And Dylan William and Hattie and lots of people are very firm to say that peer feedback and critique should always be formative, never summative, because what? of course, I mean, I think we know that, but it shouldn't be an indicator or provide any sort of advice to the teacher in terms of a final grade of assessment. But it can have a really good impact in the classroom. We want them to be, like I said, craving that feedback. I've had that with classes where, um, and the best example I think I can give is, and I put this in the book, um, is where I used to ask students to provide peer feedback critique at the end of an essay once it was finished. And then I changed it based on things I'd read in conversations where they were providing feedback after each paragraph. And the example I included in the book was because the student wrote a very brief paragraph. It was two sentences. They spelled Hastings wrong. It was an essay about the Battle of Hastings. So the peer picked up on those two things straight away after the, all they'd written was the first paragraph. Now you, you don't have to write it in the book. You could put it on a post-it note. And the peer had said, you know, next time your paragraphs need to be more developed and you need to spell Hastings correctly. 
And then they saw immediate impact because the second paragraph, Hastings is spelt correctly and the paragraph is more developed. Now, if we'd have waited until the end, Mm -hmm. they'd have felt Hastings wrong 25 times. (laughs) So having that immediate impact in the classroom where they then write a paragraph and go, oh, we just, we check this again now. And what I really loved about that example in the book, and this is, this was years ago. And I remember taking a photograph. I remember the class so well, um, is that, they used the terminology good and fix it, but they elaborated on it, like good use of this and fix it with Hastings. Because I just don't think what went well, even better if it's just language students learn, like uh, use, you know, I just, I, I don't say that either, you know, and I get it. There's nothing wrong with that principle. It's just, it seems a bit unnatural. It seems forced. And I, <laughs> I do remember students at one point, well, this is when I was in Wales and they got very good at saying the right things. I remember someone came to visit and, uh, you know, an inspector or a visitor or something. And a student said, I have a growth mindset. <laughs> and the inspector was like, oh, amazing. And it was just like, oh, no, that sounded so scripted <laughs> and fake. And I think that's what the problem with what went well and even better if was. So just using this language that they would communicate with each other that is very sort of simple and clear but that is kind specific and helpful fix it I think that's okay that's not unkind and the feedback wasn't unkind and really important to talk about how important kindness is because some students say well I'm being honest you know I can't read your handwriting or that's no that's rubbish you haven't written enough or or just their reactions and the way they say things so kindness is is key um in part of any type of feedback actually i think with teachers if we're giving each other feedback if we're observing lessons that should be kind specific and helpful absolutely if it's not specific it's not helpful it's not really you know what's the point and of course it should be kind because we're human and and feedback whether it's from the teacher or the student is is emotive and personal Certainly, I love what you mentioned there about um, peer critique always being formative. And I love that kind of example you gave about the peer support during the activity, because quite often you do a piece of work, then you get told to fix it. And you don't want to have to redraft the whole work. But if you can see improvements throughout the work, it's so visible for us to see the, the improvements. And I like that idea, that little play on terminology there that you did, especially for for young people, this idea, this was good, can you fix this? And this idea of being kind, that's wonderful. I really really like that. I'm going to implement that the the next (laughs) a certain group. I really really like that idea. So thank you so much for that. Um, We're now on to the finalist uh, form of assessment strategy. And you write that. Our ultimate goal as teachers is to ensure that our students become confident, lifelong learners that continue to flourish once they have left our classroom. So how do we activate students as owners of their own learning? Yeah, this is so important. Comes back to what you said, actually, Darren, about modelling. Look at us now talking about teaching and learning from one another. Uh, We are lifelong learners. Uh, And I know that might seem like a bit of a cheesy, cringy sort of phrase, but it's true, you know, we really are. And it's great for students to see that with us. But all of these strategies build up to this point. So students need to, if we go back to the beginning, they need to know what it is that they need to learn and have a good understanding of that, that can help them plan. Then they need to be listing the evidence so that they can get feedback from the teacher and all their peers, but actually listen to that, act on it, be responsive to it and then this is when they can self-assess their work they can improve their own work they can reflect on their work um, so it, this is about the, the plan the monitoring and then the evaluating and it, it is very frustrating as a teacher when a, a student submits a piece of work and you know they haven't checked it they you know they've made mistakes like they think you know in history it's very common and I see my students sometimes roll their eyes at me when I say things like don't forget capital letters full stops and they're like oh miss you know we're 12 13 like we of course we know that but don't always do it in their work do they and that's that and then we have to get to that point and this is what Ron Berger is so good at mm-hmm. that his students 
because he has these standards, this excellence, and um, where they say, no, 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 I, you know, I haven't checked it yet. I'm not happy with it yet. And I, I feel like I've got that with um, some of my classes, especially classes that I've taught previously, where, because uh, we work on the Google Classroom where they turn in work and then they will say to me, actually, miss, I'd rather just, can I just have a bit more time to improve this piece of work and turn it in? I say, yes, absolutely. Do it for this this date or this time and that is what I love I absolutely love that and that's you know and I and I do that as a writer I'm always redrafting mm-hmm. you know rereading my work and redrafting if you look at my books the the first draft to the the final draft are completely different as it should be not different as in I've used a different font <laughs> different different content was with students they've handed me work that's redrafted that is the same but neater and they haven't actually embraced that feedback mm-hmm. um so it's something that I, I'd done in the past and I'm not sure I'd have to reflect on this is where students highlighted how they changed it but it's a difficult one redrafting because it can do students feel like a waste of time and especially if they're just doing it again. But if they can see, hence why showing Austin's Butterfly, that video, anyone of your listeners who hasn't watched it, put it to YouTube, Austin's Butterfly. That's really inspirational for the students because that was through peer critique. And Austin's Butterfly, yeah, it's all right, you know, the first one, you can tell it's a butterfly, but then, wow, at the end, it's amazing. But it it has that impact because you see six different versions of the butterfly where he has taken this feedback, that feedback, he has improved it. Dylan William asks a really good question. Did Austin improve his butterfly or did he improve as an artist? You know, which is really, wow. You know, if he's trying to improve that piece of work, which he did, that is great and we shouldn't knock that. But Dylan William's right to say he needs to take what he's learned about the precision, about the shape, and he needs to apply that to future artwork we don't know I asked Ron Berger <laughs> where's Austin and he hasn't stayed in touch with him so we don't know Austin like I don't even think he realizes he's gone viral but we need to find out if Austin... <laughs> we need to find, out, find out if he's a good artist yeah yeah did he just improve that butterfly and then never again do a great piece of work like that which I hope not or did that then shape him for the future feedback to help move forward goes back to what we said earlier about improving the learner not just the work yes. so if, he's, if, he's, if he's now a, a really good artist then we know that we improved <laughs> learning and, and he's made an impact yeah exactly so yeah I, I did say this is the, the holy grail of teaching and learning it was a bit of a joke because John Hattie's book was described in a book review as the holy grail of teaching and learning and he was like no it's not and there is no holy grail of teaching and learning. And I was like, well, do you know what? I think this is what we can all aspire to and hope for. This is the, the best thing where students, they love learning. They might not, and they can't, we can't have that for each subject because we, you know, we all have our own preferences and skills and talents and interests. But just in general, they find something that they're passionate about, that they learn, they they understand how they can improve. And this is why I always say students need to know about retrieval practice as well, so that they can use retrieval practice independently. Mm-hmm. And that when my students leave me, or me leaving them this later <laughs> this year, that they will take these things, not just the content, but the what I've taught them about retrieval practice. And then they'll go on to university or work or wherever, uh, and use these strategies to be a lifelong learner. Certainly, certainly. It's definitely the goal that we want when we send our students out into the to the big bad world that they have. Yeah. Build up all these these skills and abilities and have this knowledge that they can then take. So thanks so much. That brings us to the end of, of the interview section. I've got a new set of quick fire questions um, coming up for, for the listeners to enjoy. But before we do that, can you remind people how they can contact you and, and follow your work, especially as you move to um, work with Inner Drive, and also um, share with us where we can uh, purchase William and Leahy's five formative assessment strategies in action? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Kate Jones underscore teach. 
Um, I have a blog. I don't blog on there anymore, but there's a backlog of stuff. Uh, I love to teach 87.com. So now my blogs will be going in a drive.com <laughs> and they are at in underscore drive on Twitter, social media. They've got a Facebook page. Please do, you know, check out. They've got loads of free posters and resources and my blogs um, are on there and will be on there. Uh, my books are all on Amazon, but you can order directly from John Katz. Um, quite a few people have, have bought my retrieval books for their whole staff. If you do that, John Cat will give a discount. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's worth either contacting me or John Cat about the, the bulk discount. And then, yeah, as of January, um, I will be working with schools. So I've got some schools. I want to come up to Scotland, obviously, because you're there and Robin, my friend Robin McPherson's there. <laughs> So I'm trying to combine working with schools and visiting lots of people that I know. And so, yeah, people can get in touch with me and I do workshops on formative assessment, retrieval practice and so on. Certainly. Well, let's see if we can get you, get you up to Scotland yeah. and work with us. That'll be, that'll be wonderful. So we're now on to the, the quick fire question. I, I've changed it slightly for the return of Becoming Educated. So I sent you out in advance. So thank you so much for, for approving the questions. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. So are you ready for them? Yeah, let's do this. So first one, uh, what are you reading currently? I'm rereading um, Daniel Willingham, although it's a version of why don't students like school? Because I'm interviewing Daniel Willingham on my Teachers Talk radio show soon. So that I'm like you, you read all these books. This takes a lot of prep, doesn't it? So, yeah, that's what I'm reading. Daniel Willingham, again, and it's brilliant. Certainly, of course. And, and just before we move on, I forgot to mention your Teacher Talk show on a, on a Friday breakfast. Can you briefly talk about that for us, please? Yeah, so I love that. I've had fantastic guests on there. Doug Lamov, Ron Berger, John Hattie, Dylan William. You know, Daisy Christodoulou is, is coming up as well. Lot of, the Bjorks, all these amazing people that I just get to ask all these questions to uh, it happens every week most of the time it's live <laughs> like John Hattie's phone battery died live <laughs> in the show it's just so random that it's live but it's it's great fun um there's not just me there's loads of other people loads of other hosts very sort of topical so do check out Teachers Talk Radio yeah, and it's also available as a podcast afterwards if you want to listen back which is absolutely fantastic because I can't listen to some of it some of yeah, it live to listen back. Back to the quick fire question. So we had number one, you're reading Daniel Williams, why don't students like school? Because he's coming up on the teacher talk show. Yeah. Number two, um, what is your current professional development focus? Yeah, so mine won't shock you, uh, has been curriculum design <laughs> with evidence-informed curriculum design. So taking cognitive science, and how we design, plan, deliver a curriculum. So I'm doing this in the current school I'm at, and I want to carry on writing, reflecting, sharing on that, because I think there's so much potential for it. Certainly is. I look forward to reading what you what you write about that in the, in the coming weeks and months. And the final question, uh, Kate, what do you love the most about being a teacher? This is so easy. It's the students. I know that's probably like the you know the obvious answer but it's true they're just so funny and kind and sweet in all the schools I've worked at uh, the students have always been amazing and I'm really really going to miss that I'm getting emotional like at the moment knowing I'm leaving this school in December uh, yeah the staff I will miss <laughs> but <laughs> it's not as much as the students no. you know I mean that they're, they're fantastic and being a form tutor love it Love being a form tutor. So registering my tutor groups much more than registering them. It's getting to see these children every day, which we don't in secondary, getting to know them really, really well, looking after them. I'm their go-to person. Yeah. So the pastoral side for me is so special. Certainly. And I'm sure your students will will miss you when you head back to, to the UK. Okay, that brings us to the end. Thanks so much for coming back on Becoming Educated. I really enjoyed that, picked up a lot from it. I loved our discussion on um, formative assessment techniques. I, I've made so many notes and I'm sure the listeners have got so much to take away as well. Oh, well, thank you. That was really, really interesting. And yeah, let's keep the conversation going. Certainly. 
Hopefully, maybe one, one day soon I can have you back on for a third time for a hat-trick of Becoming Educated appearances. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.